back, everyone, to Stethoscope, a podcast from the Northern Colorado Medical Society, bringing new scope on your community of physicians, healthcare topics, NCMS leadership, and more. You know me, I'm Paige, the Executive Director of the Northern Colorado Medical Society and the lucky host of Stethoscope. The mission of NCMS is to advocate on behalf of our physician members to encourage a strong and healthy medical profession. A part of encouraging this strong and healthy medical profession is providing outlets for our physician members to get to know their colleagues and allow them to think outside the realm of the exam room. I'm so thrilled to introduce today's guest, Dr. Eric Rush. Dr. Rush is a clinical geneticist at Children's Mercy Hospital in the University of Kansas Medical Center. He is an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He is board certified in pediatrics, internal medicine, and clinical genetics. Dr. Rush is an Alexion-sponsored speaker. Dr. Rush, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Paige. Appreciate it. Of course, it's great to have you. So we are really excited to dive in with you today to discuss the impact of rare disease and hypophosphatasia. This podcast will be the first in a two-part series sponsored by Alexion Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Today's episode will focus on an introduction to rare diseases with a brief intro to hypophosphatasia, also known as HPP, a rare progressive metabolic bone disease that can affect anyone of any age and can affect many systems within the body. So let's begin with the impact of rare diseases. Let's just start with an intro. So how is a rare disease classified in today's world of medicine? Well, in the United States, we do have a definition that a rare disease is one that affects fewer than 200,000 Americans. That corresponds to approximately one in 1,500. And this was something that was defined by the Rare Diseases Act of 2002. And it's interesting that as the number of Americans increases, the incidence that's required to qualify as a rare disease decreases as well. And it's funny to note that when the Orphan Drug Act of 1983 was passed, that kicked a lot of this off. The population in the U.S. was only 233 million. Now it's over 333 million. Wow, that is um, impressive. Thank you for um, for sharing those stats. That's a great way to, to get us started. So can you speak broader about the impact of the rare diseases that have been identified? Well, there are known to be over 7,000 rare diseases, and, and most of them, over 5,000, are genetic in nature. And each one of these disorders is rare by definition. But if they're taken all together, we think that probably about one in 10 people in the U.S. actually has a rare disease. I, I love when we put that into perspective, when you think about yourself standing in a room and you're one of 10 people that you know, could potentially have a rare disease. So it's, that's great. That's a great way to think about it and bring perspective. So everybody will know somebody that has a rare disease. Yeah. And that's, it's crazy to think about because when you think rare disease, it doesn't sound like you would know somebody. Um, So I think it's great that we're bringing scope to this. So how many of these diseases have treatments? Probably only about 5% of rare diseases have an approved treatment option. You know, the pace of development of these treatments is really accelerating. And it's notable that as the pace of development has accelerated, the number of different types of therapeutic modalities has also increased. So many of our first treatments for rare genetic diseases were enzyme replacement therapies, and, and these were really game-changing in their effects. But recent programs have also developed enzyme replacements, in many cases, newer enzyme replacements, but programs to treat rare disease are also using other treatment modalities like gene therapy, RNA therapy, substrate reduction therapy, and even others. That's great. Thank you for for sharing that. And um, 
you know, this brings a little bit more perspective to your standing room of one to 10 people, but only 5% of the rare diseases that one of 10 people may be suffering from um, have an approved treatment option. So that's, um, it's almost a little bit taken back to think about that um, and how important this really is. So can you describe some of your educational work that has been done to make community physicians aware of rare diseases and the impact on community health? You know, I found many benefits of education about rare disease at really at different points throughout the career of the, of the learner. You know, our students in undergraduate education a lot of times have had a, a, a course in basic genetics. And so they may be familiar with a handful of genetic disorders that we use more for kind of illustrative purposes. Really, my job as a professor is to build upon this foundation of what we would call Mendelian genetics to really help them understand kind of the broader landscape of rare disease. And once the students get into their graduate medical edu education as residents and fellows, we have a need and really an ability to focus their education and give them more of an expertise in rare disorders as appropriate to their specialty. You know, interestingly, this re actually relates directly to the need for continuing medical education for peers. I'm, I'm always deeply appreciative of my colleagues in the community, and I feel a sense of responsibility even to offer rare disease peer education within that specialty purview to assist them in their really challenging task of keeping broadly up to date. Yes, and speaking of CME, Dr. Rush, you know, we definitely were in the middle of a virtual education series, and it's something we pride ourselves on making sure our physician members are getting topics into their education that we may not talk about every day, or they might not talk about every day with their colleagues. So I might have to twist your arm to do a, to do a CME event with us for our physician members so they can learn more about this. Um, I'd be delighted. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, speaking of educational work, how can the educational work you just described lead to the development of tools for proper diagnosis? You know, I discussed the nature and diagnosis of rare disease with colleagues within my specialty and, and tangential specialties regularly. And I, I find that these discussions are, are often very helpful in understanding where the limitations in our knowledge exist, or sometimes just where legitimate controversy exists. You know, I also find discussion with colleagues in the community very helpful as we often make assumptions. We have conventional wisdoms as specialists within a field that really may not reflect the true nature of the disease state or, you know, a particular diagnostic pathway. And I find that fielding questions about a certain rare disease state can allow a little more space to sort of challenge these, these wisdoms. In the case of hypophosphatasia, which we will be discussing later in the program, a specific laboratory finding can help lead to the diagnosis. And that's persistently low alkaline phosphatase or, or ALP levels. And recognition of this change in paradigm is really because we've historically mostly been taught to recognize elevations in ALP. And in fact, not only is low ALP the key biochemical finding in HPP, it actually reflects the underlying genetic change in the ALPL gene that causes HPP. And secondly, we know that there are differences in the normal range for ALP activity based on age and sex. And, and this is of particular interest in children for whom normal ALP levels are substantially higher than those of adults. And that's not something we've consistently appreciated. And so that's one of those conventional wisdoms that we really seek to challenge. That's great, thank you. And I, I think it's an awesome opportunity to talk about, you know, ALP and bringing scope to that and doing this in new ways. I think COVID has taught us a lot about communication, how we can get better communication out there regarding some of some of these topics. And so this is one of the reasons why we're excited to host this podcast with you today so we can learn more. So, you know, what do you think is the biggest challenge for community physicians when they're trying to diagnose a rare disease? 
I think there are several challenges for community physicians when diagnosing a rare disease. And honestly, I think a knowledge gap is the least important of them. I think time limitations are a significant challenge for busy clinicians. And I think we have to be very cognizant of that. And additionally, I think we need to both publicize existing tools that can be used to, to diagnose and educate about rare disease and also develop new tools for diagnosis and decision support. I always recommend that community physicians develop their own expert referral network, and this can help them so they're able to reach out efficiently when a potential rare disease comes your way. And, and really recognizing that that patient may have a rare disease is often the first and, and most important step to making a diagnosis. You know, and hopefully if, you know, when our physician members are listening to this potentially on their drive home and maybe they're walking their dog on a Saturday morning, that can be the first recognition that they say, you know, hey, maybe maybe we need a referral to this. So hopefully this is step one. Um, that's the goal. So can you share more about the history of hypophosphatasia or HPP? When was this rare disease first identified? Really, what is it and how has our understanding of this disease evolved over time? I do think the historical context is important, and, and rare disease discovery is, is an ongoing process. So some of these rare disorders were discovered a long time ago and, and really have kind of rich description in, in classical manuscripts, but more commonly, rare disorders were originally described in maybe the you know last half of the 19th century or first half of the 20th century, and this is really as medicine organized itself around that scientific model, kind of the modern model of medical care. You know, because our tools at that time were mostly really based on history and physical examination, our understanding of those diseases reflected that focus. And it, it did lead to real advances in the understanding of how the presentation of these disorders occurred. But really, given that the majority of these rare diseases are genetic, the underlying cause of that remained unknown for many years. And it may seem really strange, but it actually has been the rule. And, you know, keep in mind that the first genetic disorder to have an underlying etiology for we really understood what the cause was, was Down syndrome, which I think most people are familiar with. And we now know most appropriately as trisomy 21. It was discovered by Lejeune and colleagues that people with a clinical diagnosis of Down syndrome had this extra copy of what was called then a group G chromosome, or, or what we now understand as chromosome 21. And it's interesting that this basic and fundamental aspect of clinical genetics was discovered in 1959. It, it wasn't that long ago. And my professional discipline is known as, as dysmorphology. And, and this is the study of, of malformations or what you might call birth defects. And this wasn't organized as a field of study until the 1960s. This stuff is really new. So going back to hypophosphatasia for a minute, after all, that was the question you actually asked me. This was not originally described until 1948. And, and this was a patient with extremely severe and ultimately lethal disease. And that index patient would undoubtedly have been considered to have infantile disease at that point. You know, over the next few decades, we've understood HPP to have a spectrum of disease from the extremely severe to the relatively mild and, and everything in between. And this has been the general rule for genetic disorders. And, and in many cases, a paradigm of how we understand disease is that the most severe manifestations of disease are discovered first. They're, after all, the most obvious. And in many cases, this may be assumed to be the entirety of the disease. And in some cases, after milder cases are discovered, the spectrum is immediately recognized. In other cases, it's presumed to be an entirely different condition. And this perception often persists until the underlying etiology is discovered. And in many cases, this takes a number of years. 
some conditions we still haven't completely explained, which may seem odd for where we are in our genetic technology. And really, even HPP being molecularly characterized relatively early is, is no stranger to any of these differences and any of these perceptions. And we're still understanding fundamental aspects of this condition and fundamental aspects of, of genetics. And I would say welcome to the cutting edge of 2020's genetic medicine. Definitely the cutting edge of, of 2020. And I'm, I'm so excited to look back um, in 50 years and see where we're at then with all of this. And, you know, because we just keep growing and technology just keeps improving. So I look forward to, to understanding how amazing physicians like you continue to, to make the world a healthier place. Um, so Dr. Rush, can you walk us through a case study of hypophosphatasia or HPP, please? Sure, I can give you some highlights of a, of a case of HPP. So I, I'm thinking of a patient in particular, and this is a patient in their, in their late 30s. And the presentation was not early on, of course. This is a patient who was presenting with pain and, and metatarsal fractures. And these metatarsal fractures were unhealing. You know, this could be somebody who could come into a number of different specialty offices. There's a patient also with a normal birth and normal early childhood, but did have premature loss of, of their primary teeth. Interestingly, the careful history that was taken didn't uncover a history that was suggestive of rickets, which can happen with patients with HPP, but not everyone with HPP has rickets. However, the patient did have some issues with motor development and function, even precluding things like competitive athletics as a teenager. And she always described herself as being relatively slow in running. It may seem like a really subtle finding, but it can be important when you're working with patients with, with HPP that may be on the less severe end of that spectrum. And concern had been already raised about HPP, so I wasn't necessarily coming into this raw. So I, I only had completed the diagnostic evaluation that was already started, but fortunately, we were able to make a diagnosis for that patient based on those signs and symptoms. Well, I'm so glad that you were able to share, uh, you know, a bit information, a bit of information when it comes to a case study. And you know, we're really looking forward to on our next episode, we'll take a much deeper dive into hypophosphatasia from the perspective of an adult endocrinologist. But before we let you go today, Dr. Rush, what are the take-home pearls for our audience regarding rare diseases and hypophosphatasia? I would say take advantage of rare disease education when possible and, and build your expertise network. You know, HPP provides an example of a rare disease where a really commonly performed lab test can raise suspicion for the disease, but it's the additional context, such as the signs and symptoms associated with HPP, that's really required to make that accurate diagnosis. Well, perfect. Thanks. Thank you so much, Dr. Rush. It was just awesome to have you here today. And we, we're so excited for part two of this episode as we can continue to explore rare diseases and get better uh, knowledge out to community physicians, especially when we try and make our Weldon Lambert counties healthier communities. So thank you all for listening in on Stethoscope and we will see you soon.